0: Good afternoon, Seven Investors, and welcome to a special edition of Seven Investing Now. That's right. Most of the show is going to be us talking about under-the-radar stocks that you suggested to us on Twitter, and we've got a packed panel joining us today. We've got Simon Erickson. Simon, welcome to the show. Hello, Daniel Brooks-Klein. It's good to be here. I should probably say who I am, of course. Can I call you Dan? Is that okay? (laughs) My name is Daniel Brooks-Klein. You can call me Dan. That's a little bit of a joke because I always used Daniel B. Klein as my byline before coming here. And then all of a sudden I'm Dan Klein. Nobody asked. We just did it. So that is a little bit of a joke there. Uh, <laughs> Max Chasco, Max, who has one too many X's in his name. He's going to be joining us as well. Max, how are you?
1: Good. Yes. And I also have some problems with my name and spelling. So I'm right there with you, Dan. That
0: And Steve Symington, uh, Steve was just talking about how his chair makes him look like a giant. Steve, you're actually a giant here.
2: <laughs> I, I, I'm not small, but hi, Dan B. Klein. It's good to be with you today.
0: Please get your questions, your comments. Uh, and no, I'm not this red in real life. I have no idea what's going on with my lighting. There's, uh, we're in the process of moving, so I'm sort of in, like, in between. I'm at my kitchen table here, but we are happy that you joined us. We will try to get to your comments. We're going to talk under-the-radar stocks, but before we do that, Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the big news of the day. Um, Simon, I want your thoughts quickly on Salesforce agreeing to buy Slack. That is an absolute major deal. Your thoughts, Simon Erickson? What a deal indeed, Dan. In 10
3: hours a day, the average enterprise employee has Slack up for 10 hours a day and actively engaging with it for 100 minutes a day. Now, I know that that's the average, Dan. I think you and
0: I are actually spending 10 hours actively engaging on Slack. I spent... 80 minutes on Friday and Saturday after 8 p.m. That's how <laughs> that's how engaged on Slack we are. Now, admittedly, some of our Slack use is social, and that's not really why Salesforce is buying it.
3: That's right. This is a play for the enterprise customers. What Salesforce really wants is that 100 minutes of active time that enterprise employees are using Slack. And they're using it for uh, what they're calling an engagement layer. In fact, Sam Bailey, if you could, we have a great graphic to kind of depict what's going on behind the scenes of the rationale of this acquisition. And so I'm hoping everyone can see this, but you can kind of see at the top, this is where employees are talking to each other on Slack. Hey, Andre, what do you think about this? Does this make sense? Yes, we ran the numbers, everything looks good. But then beneath that is the layer of integrated applications. And this is what Salesforce has been trying to upsell to its enterprise customers for years. This is where Salesforce derives the majority of its margin and its revenues. So what it wants to do is integrate those applications that that tie in with the decisions that are being made by human beings and then make it seamless at the bottom where the transactions are actually taking place. I think it's a brilliant strategy. I think this is a win for both parties involved. Great job by Salesforce on closing yet another acquisition.
0: Steve, I'm going to come to you in a second, but Simon, I want to ask one quick follow-up here. So integration isn't always easy. I'll, I'll give an example. Microsoft and Skype has gone so poorly that Microsoft has created Skype competitors, which doesn't make a ton of sense when you spent, I want to say, $8 billion. It might have only been $6 billion. It was a lot of billions. Uh, but there's some history with Salesforce here. They've made some big acquisitions in the past. So do you think that has them more prepared to deal with this? Dan
3: I am so glad that you asked. In fact, I have another graphic that addresses that exact question of yours. So if, if you want we, we, you know, we, we do thing, have a I was, script. I going to say I was well prepared for this one in advance. Uh Salesforce has closed a lot of acquisitions over the past 5, 10, 20 years. And you see how they just kind of keeps building out their ecosystems. These are the applications that integrate in and with that with that conversation layer at the top. And Salesforce does this really really well and I think this is why Slack and thanks very much Slam for showing that. This is I think why uh uh, Slack sold, or Slack agreed to be sold to Salesforce when they turned down in the past Microsoft. They turned down in the past Amazon. They wanted to remain independent because they wanted to have those 2400, uh, 2,400 integrations with other APIs, with other applications already within Slack. So what does Salesforce get with this? Not only does it get to use its own Salesforce apps, it gets integration with a couple thousand other providers, and it's got 10 hours of, of being open uh, by employees during the day to start actually doing the blocking and tacking and the transactions behind the scene. I think it's a big win for Salesforce. I think that they do acquisitions really, really well. I'm encouraged um, for anybody who who rides this through to continue to hold the the Salesforce piece of it because I think that they're going to continue to repeat the market.
0: And I think it sets the future for Salesforce, uh, for for Slack, excuse me, because if Amazon bought them, I could could have seen it being a social play where they swing into, you know, hey, you're on here for work. Now let's integrate your fantasy football group. This clearly says, nope, this is going to be a work platform. There's going to be all sorts of added work integrations. Before we move on to under the radar stocks, and uh, and we've got something special to talk about before that, Steve Simonton, what are your thoughts on this deal?
2: Uh, I think it's a great deal, and I think Simon covered it well. Uh, I think one of the questions we're going to get often is what happens to you know Slack and Salesforce stock from here. But Slack, in particular, uh, its share price is going to uh, be a little more steady, obviously, but it's going to track uh, because this is about what is it a 50 fifty fifty cash and stock deal roughly. Um, so it's going to track closely to what Salesforce's stock does over the next several months. And this won't close for several months. So it's not like you're going to get your, uh, fraction of a Salesforce share and your cash payout right away. So, uh, that's something to keep in mind. It's going to be several months before the deal closes. And before you see any real change in the structure of your brokerage account, if you are a Slack shareholder. So keep that in mind,
0: Steve, to close out here, are there any regulatory concerns for this deal? <sighs>
2: Um, there's always regulatory concerns, um, but I, I don't see any significant challenges coming up that would potentially block this. I mean, the big thing that you you might be concerned about is antitrust. But I think there's so much competition in the marketplace uh, that I, I don't think that's a concern. And I don't think anything uh, steps on their foot and prevents this from happening. Um, personally, I, I, I don't see it happening.
0: I'd also argue I've used Salesforce and I still don't understand what it does, so it's really <laughs> hard to argue antitrust concerns. I'm teasing a little bit, but I think a lot of people are really excited about this deal that have literally no idea what Salesforce does. Before we move on to stocks that are under the radar, and this was, I shared a tweet on uh, on Twitter, where else would you share a tweet, asking you to throw some stocks at me. And that being said, we got like 6,000 people that interacted with that tweet. It was seen by an absolute ton of you, so we're really excited to get there. But before we go there, Simon Erickson, you're on for the first 20 minutes or so of the show. But yesterday was a very special day for 7investing. On the first of the month, our picks came out. Uh, Simon, what does that mean? And what does it mean for all the people who are members or might want to join us as members?
3: Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Dan. Um, The first of the month, the way that it works is that's when we release our new recommendations every month. And so we, we talk a lot on this show about... The diversity of our team, the diversity of the types of markets that we look at, the diversity of the recommendations that we make. And I guess I wanted to go uh, pull back the curtain a little bit and kind of talk a little bit more about that today and kind of show you what that really means. And so Sam, if we can show the graphic, this is actually a look at the recommendations we've made for December. This is what we published yesterday to our subscribers. And you can kind of see Max has got a lower risk utility company. I, I think it's a fantastic pick and he made a very thorough Reason for purchasing this. Uh, Dan, uh, you know, you picked a real estate company this month, modern yeah, risk
0: real estate company. I, I picked something that you wouldn't think was in my wheelhouse, but I sort of tie it into the rest of You know, so it makes sense when you read my recommendation, when you watch our video. That's something else is later in the month, we share the very long, it was like two plus hours video call where we each pitch our stock to each other and make all our arguments and there's back and forth there's questions so you really get to understand our our bull case but also what the bear case is yeah we do and
3: if you look at some of the other ones we've got some retail picks on there too we've got some very high risks on there too manisha sammy our our newest advisor at seven investing just crushed it with her pitch for this biotechnology company. I, I am a huge fan of her first recommendation for seven investing. Very high risk, but ton of potential on that. And you see, Steve, Steve's got enterprise software, Austin's on retail. I've got a retail pick, as does Matt Cochran. And so what I wanted to show this, the reason I wanted to show that is to just kind of point out, you know, we've got different styles of investing every single month. And subscribe, you know, we don't we don't talk about the recommendations on, on the public sphere like this show, Dan. But if of you do subscribe, not. you gotta be a member. That's right, but if you if you are a subscriber to Seven Investing, you sign up, then everything's fair game. You know, you can send us a direct message on Twitter and say, "Hey, Simon, I just saw your recommendation. Uh, what do you think about this?" Uh, You you can call Dan Klein, who takes phone calls at 3 a.m., no matter what time of the night it is, (laughs) and ask him about his pick. But it's basically fair game. And then we also have a subscriber-only call where we go through every one of our recommendations for the month and also previous picks, too. It's a great interactive way to not just see the recommendations and read the reports, but actually genuinely ask the questions that you have and interact. And, and Sam, if you could show just maybe one last time an active look. This is a live demo we're doing now of our of our recommendations page. I don't know if we can get it. Oh, perfect. Okay, yeah. So if you go to 7 slash recommendations, you can actually see the scorecard and how we're performing because we're tracking every single one of our picks transparently. We're not leaving anything out. Every recommendation goes into that. And if you do subscribe, you get to drill down and see all the reports for all of the previous recommendations. So exciting day, like you said yesterday, Dan. We published our newest picks and uh, really a special
0: day for seven of us. So, Simon, you joked a bit, but we are actually that accessible. Like, you know, you said, Dan, you can call Dan at 3 a.m. You can't call me at 3 a.m. (laughs) But if you remember, when I drove back and forth to North Carolina about a month ago, I actually had a number of members that wanted to talk. And I did a handful of phone calls with people that just wanted some really basic, you know, how do I get started? How do you decide what to buy, when to sell? And, you know, we can't give personalized investing advice, but we can certainly share what our thoughts are. And again, we – we're not going to be able to talk to each one of you. But when we do these private calls, there's not thousands of people there. There's dozens, there's hundreds. So, you know, you'll be able to really get access to us in a way you can't even on this show. Because, of course, Seven Investing Now is public facing. Anyone could watch this. You get an awful lot for $17 a month or $170 a year. And of course, if you go to 7investing.com slash subscribe, you can join us. And not only do you get this month's picks, not only do you get all the great things we talked about, you also get access to every pick we've ever made. But with that, we're gonna go to social media and remember this is a social media show. Feel free to ask questions, comments, throw some stuff up for us to share. But we got a lot of stocks to talk about. We're gonna go with Simon first. These are stocks that you think are under the radar that you wanted us to talk about. We can't talk about everyone, frankly. Some of them we'd never heard of, but we all went through and made a list of ones, you know, we were up to date on. These aren't recommendations. We're just gonna give you our thoughts on the stock, and we're gonna do it again on Friday with Matt Cochran and Manisha Sammy. Simon. Uh, VJ wanted us to talk about Insego. That's ticker symbol I-N-S-G. What do you know about this company?
3: Yeah, this is an under-the-radar pick that a lot of people aren't familiar with. A lot of people are more familiar with a, what used to be its parent company, which was Novatel Wireless. Uh, so what this company is doing is what's called fixed wireless access. Uh, what that means to most people is MiFi. When you would be going through airports or if you're out in the country and you've got your laptop and you want to connect to the internet, but you don't have reliable reliable ethernet port, You use a MiFi device to go through cellular broadband signals. And so this has been kind of a niche application for so many years, but there's a trend developing that 5G and cellular signal is just outpacing uh, laying Ethernet or fiber cable that the telecom companies don't want to spend the capital to to lay in the ground. And so it's an interesting trend within Seago. It's still selling hardware devices. That's still a difficult sell for most people. But there's this huge trend of of people connecting through that 5G stronger signal, which could be really interesting for it going, going forward. This, to me, is
0: a watch space. Um, I've I've tried a number of devices to get better remote internet, probably some of theirs, um, and it's hit or miss. But, Simon, you want to do one more before you have to jet on us here. It's uh, New Oriental Education. That is ticker symbol EDU, and it was recommended by Everest Brady or suggested that we talk about it by Everest Brady.
3: Yeah, Everett, thank for thank you for the recommendation on this one. EDU is a ticker on this one, New Oriental Education. Uh, education is a very big deal in China, especially preparatory education, because there's certain standardized tests that can determine whether you get into the good schools or if you get scholarships to those good schools. And parents take it very seriously about putting their, their children in programs, even at a young age, to prepare for those tests. And so that's what New Oriental Education did. Uh, They built centers all around China to to prepare for those, to have kind of independent study and also more guided standardized test preparation. The interesting thing on this one is COVID happened this past (laughs) year, and uh, a lot of parents pulled their their kids out of those schools. And so you've seen declining margins. You've seen declining um, revenue per student enrolled across the board for those. And it's kind of moved them to the online space where competition is much more intense Um, Because it's just not the same as having a a direct in-person interaction. So one that's on my radar, it's it's definitely under the radar uh, for most people. But I I think that education still is a huge deal in China. We might just be at kind of a difficult year with, with everything going on with COVID right now.
0: Yeah. Sending your kid back to a physical school is not necessarily the easiest thing to do. Uh, My my son is in physical school, but most of his classmates are not. He's in a a video training program. So being able to access the equipment is important, but there's only a handful of kids. So it's going to be a weird time for any of these companies. Simon Erickson, thank you for joining us today. Go about the business of being the CEO of uh, 7investing.com. We will see you down the
3: road. If I might just add one more thing too, thank you to everybody who's been uh, referring Seven Investing to your friends and family. We do have a referral program that if you're a subscriber and you send out the custom link within your, um, your, your My Account dashboard, you get free months for everybody who signs up we just heard from one of our members just this past week that he sent it out and within three days had 15 people sign up. So he's got more than a year of Seven Investing now lined up for free for doing that. Uh, we really appreciate that. It helps keep our marketing costs down. We also want this to be an organic growth for Seven Investing, where you love our service, you tell your friends and your family. So thank you very much for everyone who's sharing those links as well.
0: So Simon, let me let me suggest that while we want people to get for free, we might want to cap how many they can get at our lifespan. So, like once you've got like 60 years for free, at that point we we no longer get guarantee anymore. I'm teasing a little bit. Sean O'Reilly, who may or may not be our old colleague, Sean O'Reilly. It he is I, hey Sean. It is. Our, our, our friend, someone we worked with, uh who, who no longer works there either, he wants to know about the uh the prospects for EDU with the recovery. I'm gonna say China's trending ahead of us. We've seen Starbucks bounce back to pre-pandemic sales levels and What I would say is they're probably going to be in a better position in person, but also they'll have all these online tools that they built up. Simon, any thoughts there before we let you go?
3: Yeah, I mean, these are capital requirements, right? You have to build out the schools, and then there's also a time requirement because you have to train the teachers that are going to be in those schools. So it's much harder to displace in-person learning in China than it is to displace online learning, which is – infinitely scalable, at least in theory. So I think that the vaccine, to your question, Sean, is a net positive for the company that's invested so far uh, in building the bricks and more schools out there. I think that that's a that's a net positive for a new Oriental.
0: And, and I'll throw out Sean O'Reilly, you still owe me a drink. We talked about getting together for a drink for about two years, and it never happened. Simon, thank you. Max Chasco, you're up next. Uh, S.V. Sridhar uh, wants to know about Fulgent Genetics. Uh, that is Fulgent, uh, not Folgers, the coffee company. Fulgent Genetics. Max, your thoughts here.
1: Yeah, so Fulgent Genetics is a genetic testing company. Uh, really, it started in 2019 at a market valuation of about $100 million. So definitely not a, a big company by any means. But it took advantage of the coronavirus pandemic to offer its testing services for these uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2 tests. And this year... It expects to have full year 2020 revenue of $300 dollars. That's up from 32 million dollars last year. Uh, so this is an example of a company that's taking advantage of the pandemic. It's using its labs, its throughput, its expertise, and it's. I think investors should look at this as you know non dilutive uh, capital raising, right? Um, it doesn't have to go to the market and issue stock. It doesn't take on debt. So it can use this cash, uh, you know, infusion here from the coronavirus pandemic to to invest into its. It's other platform, it's other offerings. That said, um, the company is pretty expensive if you back out all of the uh, coronavirus testing revenue. Uh, It might only have about $50 million in revenue this year from its non-coronavirus testing. So that would value this at about 20 times sales, which is pretty expensive for a genetic testing company. If you look at uh, Invitae, which is growing much more rapidly, much more quickly, um, it's valued at about 23 times sales. Exact Sciences, which is a huge company as well. Uh, it's only about about 14, 13 times sales. So investors might want to be cautious here. You know, uh, it's going to have more cash to work with, but um, you know, it could go sideways or even decline in the next few years if its uh, core um, business doesn't actually pick up growth or uh, Max, doesn't that prove one sustainable. Was also
0: re- uh, asked about by Roy Granat. We want to credit everyone who uh, who got involved because so many people did. And of course, get your comments in. We're gonna we're gonna get to a couple more later. But Max, we're moving on to. Actinium Pharmaceuticals. That was asked uh, by Biotech Enthusiast, which is at Biotech Enthusi1 on
1: Twitter. I I thought everybody knew about that one.
0: (laughs) I've (laughs) never heard of this one. Max, is this a real company?
1: It is a real company. This is actually an interesting company. So it takes monoclonal antibodies, which are biologic drugs, and it attaches to those uh, radioisotopes. So things that are way at the bottom of the periodic table, and those are delivered into cancer cells. And then they give off radiation. So it's like targeted chemo in a way, right? Um, They only kill cancer cells within that small little area. And the company is very small. I think it's valued at maybe $150 million. So it's definitely under the radar. But it does have some very interesting clinical results uh, from some of its trials. Here's the thing. It's radioisotopes, people. Like there's some really big problems with that upstream and downstream, right? Manufacturing radioisotopes, you have to use particle accelerators, or go to Russia, which has a huge uh, atomic industry. And there could be some problems there with manufacturing uh, pharmaceutical-grade radioisotopes. Uh, there's also the downstream issues of you're putting this into people, and they do excrete it, right? Um, so, for instance, one uh, of the isotopes is uh, iodine-131. So this is sometimes used to treat thyroid cancer. But well, one of the problems is eventually people have to excrete it through urine, through sweat, Uh, So there have been cases where, you know, we can't just send people home after getting treated because they're kind of coating like their toilet and their sink and their shower with uh, radioactivity. And that's not really good for everyone else in the household. So they have to be housed in special facilities for a pretty long time. Uh, And there's been cases where people have actually set off radiation detectors at airports, which are used to detect if people are smuggling, you know, radioactive compounds. So there's some practical issues that might limit the market uh, opportunity here for this, even though it, it does look pretty effective in terms of uh, treating cancers
0: plus a particle accelerator explosion is of course what created the flash and led to all (laughs) sorts of villains in the Arrowverse. so that is a big problem no it is not that is a fictional show i am kidding we got one more comes from chase dyer uh again max not one i've heard of it is a Gvo. so think the band devo but with a g Givo inc
1: (laughs) well i've never heard of the band but i've actually followed Givo for oh come on whip it You've never heard of Devo? I was born in like 2000, Dan. You know this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, I'm sending you a link later, but let's, let's move forward.
1: All right, Jivo. I've been covering this for about 10 years, so it's an industrial biotech company. That's actually my background, bioprocess engineering, scaling up fermentation, scaling up industrial processes. So Jivo uh, is engineering microbes to make isobutanol. Uh, so on paper, isobutanol is way better than ethanol um, if we were going to use it in, in uh, a fuel oxygenate, so adding it to gasoline. It has more, it's more energy content in it. Uh, it's more compatible with existing energy infrastructure. We can put in pipelines, we can put in engines. It's not going to rust everything out like sometimes higher concentrations of ethanol can do. Problem is, um, you know, this, it's hard to make uh, economically with uh, industrial biotech processes. Fermentation just isn't really, uh, you need a huge scale to make the economics work. So it's pretty tough. Um, now, I know Givo does have partnerships with some big companies, I think uh, Virgin Airlines, uh, maybe a couple other ones. And and that's actually very common among uh, these smaller industrial biotech companies. You know, bigger companies move in. They say, here's some money. So let's see if it works, if it does good for us. But they often walk away all the time. Uh, so just because a big partnership or a big customer has maybe signed some memorandum of understanding doesn't necessarily mean anything for individual investors. Um, so, you know, Givo's going to be struggling for a while. I, I don't really think it's uh, investable. And actually, Simon and I just had a podcast that published yesterday. So if you're watching this as I'm recording, that would be uh, published to our site on Tuesday. We talked to John Stone, who's an industrial biotech industry veteran, and I asked him specifically about uh, isobutanol because, again, on paper, it's so much better than ethanol. And, uh, you know, he explained his reasoning for why that just hasn't taken off as it was expected to, um, you know, in the last five or 10 years. So uh, you can go read that podcast, read the transcript, view the, uh, the podcast uh, for more, more information on isobutanol that kind of affects Jeevo as well.
0: Max, before we let you take a bit of a break here, uh, Doris and Renee Carell want to know, uh, they say radioisotopes are very dangerous. Is Can the treatment be worse than the disease?
1: Um, not always. So, um, you know, it's very targeted. So the radiation, the decay that is given off is actually only affects cells right around uh, where it's delivered to. So there's some questions of, is it actually delivered where it has to go? What happens if it accumulates somewhere else in the body? But uh, yeah, that's certainly an issue. But I, I think it's... Uh, it's not as dangerous as it seems i guess
0: it actually amazes me how much of science i know is actually superhero related and probably not in any way true uh, <laughs> we're going to move on to steve simington steve naresh wants to know about magnite that is uh ticker symbol mgni what can you tell us here
2: yeah and actually uh nishan sean uh posted a comment earlier uh that sort of relates to this he said your view on supply side versus demand side programmatic ad companies long-term winner Magnite happens to be, uh, this is ticker MGNI, uh, It used to be Rubicon technologies, uh, but it's the market's largest independent supply side or sell side exchange for programmatic ads. It's essentially working to get publishers the maximum amount of revenue possible from their placements. By comparison, uh, the trade desk is the other, uh, side of this coin. It's the, it's the biggest demand side or buy side platform, um, that's, you know, independent anyway, uh, that's works to get advertisers, agencies, trading desks, the lowest price possible as they buy digital ad inventory. So, uh, like I said, two sides to this coin, uh, Magnite has rallied. They both rallied pretty hard as, uh, digital advertising has rebounded in recent months, but Ma- Re- Magnite's rallied even harder, uh, largely become it's, uh, because it's, uh, becoming evident that advertisers are shifting their spending to its connected TV platform. Uh, And this is, you know, as more consumers kind of cut the cord on cable, um, Magnite actually issued a press release a couple of weeks ago uh, that outlines some of the momentum for their their CTV platform. Uh, I own this stock. I'm not selling it. I wouldn't count on a pullback. Um, I wouldn't count out a pullback, but I certainly, you know, I guess, expect it to trend higher over the long term. Uh, for perspective, the trade desk is about a $40 billion market cap right now. Uh, Magnite's closer to $2 billion, uh, kind of much earlier stage. Um, but if I'm going to go anywhere, I'm going to lean on the side of the supply side or sell side exchange uh, right now anyway, personally. So that's kind of where I sit on on Magnite.
0: You are watching 7investing now. I, of course, am Dan Klein, and uh, we are talking stocks that are under the radar. This is something we shared on Twitter and you responded. So you can follow us on Twitter at 7investing. And of course, you can see we all have Twitter accounts. I'm at Worst Idea 7 Everybody's Twitter comes up when they're talking, so I won't make them share them now. But we've got one more from Naresh, and that is 2U. Uh, that is a uh, ticker symbol T-W-O-U. Uh, I assume, Steve, that this is a company that resells print songs. Uh, I'm probably wrong there.
1: <laughs> no,
2: it's uh, an online education platform company. So uh, it started out, its primary focus was in uh, graduate degree programs. And they partner with, I think it was, last I checked, 75 of the world's top universities. And uh, they also have undergraduate programs. And sh- uh, through a couple acquisitions, they now offer short courses that and tech boot camps, uh so they they spent a quite quite a bit of money acquiring a couple of companies to fold into uh to fold under their wing i guess and expand their reach that way basically now they offer uh, essentially programs across the entire spectrum of higher education and um third quarter it, it's been interesting over the last several months uh in the last few quarters actually we've seen uh, pretty favorable enrollment trends um, driving pretty strong growth. I think last quarter there was 31% year over year organic growth, uh, and that was accelerated from 18% in the second quarter. And really, what's happening is we're seeing more people take the opportunity to kind of reskill and upskill given economic uncertainty. So it's sort of this counter cyclical play on economic uncertainty. Uh, part of the worry is that, that um that growth will slow down after the pandemic sort of wanes and people will say, Oh, maybe I don't have to go back to college, or maybe I don't have to take this tech boot camp or short course to kind of upskill. Uh, but I don't think that's happening. Uh, there are signs that this is sustainable. Um, and to you, uh, got hit really hard a couple of years ago because they basically scaled down, uh, their expansion plans for their graduate program segment, and uh, they sort of reset their growth pr- plans, freaked out the market. Um, but what they've really done, um, and, and the big difference is that your graduate programs take longer to turn cash flow positive because you know, they require higher upfront investment. They take uh, several years to actually turn cash flow positive. But short courses and boot camps take less time and less upfront investment. So what 2U is doing is they're, they're shifting their investments and their program launches to better reflect um, or to, to to kind of better measure uh how they turn cash flow positive and and actually reach sustained profitability. So we kind of see a map for that. Should be a really interesting company to watch over the next several quarters as this all plays out in the pandemic kind of we put it in the rearview view mirrors. So.
0: And Steve, I'll jump in with another comment from Doris and Renee. Uh, you know, good idea on education for so many. Education levels are having to change so fast for so many. And and I agree with that. I think we're at an inflection point for education where college, where the traditional way we're getting educated, maybe isn't going to be for everyone. And I don't think we know the answer, but I think there's going to be a lot of innovation there. But before we move to the next one, we've got, we've got uh, one more from Steve, one from me. Then we're going to go to what we're watching. Steve, I'm going to give you a time limit here. I know this is a company you really like to talk about, but both Carlos (laughs) and Shaul have asked us about Lemonade. So, Steve, you've got about 90 seconds.
2: All right, I'll I'll make it fast. Uh, I also own Lemonade. Uh, It's recently IPO, digital-first, artificial intelligence-centric insurance platform. So, currently offers three products: homeowners insurance, renters, and as of July, pet insurance. And uh, you know, its applications take you know some of them is you can get in that and it. you can apply in as little as ninety seconds. They pay out some of their claims in three seconds. It's ridiculous. They delight customers along the way. Uh, it's basically been built ground up as a digital solution, whereas a lot of the industry in insurance industry incumbents are uh, they they are kind of held back by this huge constituency of you know tens of thousands of agents where Lemonade doesn't have to worry so much about that. Uh, Another thing I'm excited about with Lemonade is its optionality. I recently announced it's testing a life insurance product and it's expanding its geographic reach further into Europe. I think they announced an expansion into France. Uh, Down the road, I'd expect it to potentially expand into auto and health insurance as well. Um... You know, and while it's fostering its base, it's growing quickly. It's still really small. Uh, shares recently fell and then rebounded after lockup expiration for about a third of its restricted shares. So there's been a lot of volatility. Recent IPO. Um, the only other thing I can add about Lemonade, uh, as compared to some of its other competitors, is they made the, the decision to become. Um, they didn't want to just be a broker. You know, they wanted to actually. And uh, you know, I've got this book. If anyone wants to know more <laughs> about it, I highly recommend the making of lemonade by Ty Seglo. He's actually one of the uh, one of the co founders of the company, who acted as an advisor, helped them make the decisions to become the decision to become an insurance carrier rather than a broker, so they can create their own products and uh, they're not just reselling packages made by other companies. So, uh, really interesting company, really small, really volatile, uh, but a lot of promise there.
0: And if you've ever gotten insurance, any type of insurance, this is an area that massively needs disruption. It is very unpleasant to get almost every kind of insurance. I'm going to take one to close out the uh, Stocks Under the Radar segment. This comes from Ankit, uh, who wanted to know about Stitch Fix. If you don't know what Stitch Fix is, it's a closed sort of recommendation service. You go on, you say who you are, and they send you a box of clothes, and you can keep which items you want. There are some other pieces to it, but that's the core of their business. I hate this business. So there and there are a lot of smart people who really like it, but to me it's such a niche. This is basically people who have to look a certain way or want to look a certain way who don't like shopping. That to me is a very small amount of people. Now, do I think it's going to be a profitable business? Yes, I think it's going to be AI driven and eventually they will make some money. So if you own it, not as an investor as you know you know you're the person who who owns the majority well maybe you'll make some money do I think there's massive upside here I really don't I know some people disagree but it is one that I just think is serving a very small audience we're gonna move now to what we're watching that's when everyone on the show gets to bring their own topic uh, and, and I don't get to veto they can talk about whatever it is they want to talk about and of course that's usually financial but it doesn't have to be feel free to get your questions and comments in we'll be happy to take them as we go along. And remember, we're going to do a part two of stocks that are under the radar. Uh, That is going to happen on Friday with Manisha Sammy, and Matt Cochran joining me on 7 Investing Now. Max, you want to talk about Google's deep mind. I don't know what that is. That sounds very sinister. That sounds like the bad guy in a Bond movie. So why don't you explain what deep mind is first?
1: Yeah, so uh, Google's DeepMind is kind of their offshoot, uh, working on AI and machine learning. So it's kind of started their like, overarching goals to make you know, a human-like AI, right? I think they've also done some work in autonomous vehicles and, and things like that. Anything you can apply, you know, massive data problems, how can we solve it with AI? Uh, but recently, one of the things they just solved, so to speak, uh, was Google's DeepMind was entered into um, a protein structure prediction contest happens every two Who years. hasn't it's gone entered on into one of those? I
0: mean, come on. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Go ahead.
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah, mostly academic groups. But in 2018, uh, DeepMind actually entered for the first time, and it, it kind of blew away uh, academics. And then in 2020, just the one that happened this year, absolutely crushed the field. And actually, Microsoft and China's uh, Tencent also entered this year, but they didn't perform so well. Um, so DeepMind was uh, used to take the amino acid sequence of a protein and then determine what the structure of the protein was, which is a very difficult problem to solve. So the company actually was over twice as successful um, based on a quality metric, ranked against all the different proteins that were thrown out to the groups in the challenge. Uh, it was over twice as as much successful as the next closest group. It, was, it wasn't even close.
0: So, Max, I'm going to dumb it down a little bit here up. Why does this matter? It all sounds very interesting. You throw out all sorts of words I used in like biology class where I got like a C minus in 10th grade. But um, why is this important? Why does it matter?
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, uh, if we go back to like the basic of biology, right? It's DNA makes RNA, and RNA is used to make proteins. But proteins and enzymes are what actually drive biology, right? Um, Whether that's lowering your blood pressure, you're clearing plaques out of your brain when you're sleeping. Uh, or, you know, your metabolism, you know, your, your your liver makes certain enzymes that uh, break certain things down. So you can excrete it through your urine, so you don't get kidney stones. So it's often common to talk about, you know, diseases having a genetic component and looking at genomics. But you know, those mutations in DNA, cause mutations in the RNA, and then that makes the wrong protein. So disease is actually, you know, driven by faulty proteins. So we can have a better understanding of protein structures we can have a better understanding of what, you know, uh, how diseases work. We can have uh, more advanced drug discovery, more efficient drug discovery. And it also plays into, you know, biology is not just in healthcare anymore. Uh, There's industrial processes. We just talked about GEvo Maybe they could make isobutanol economically if they had, you know, Google's DeepMind helping them to, you know, uh, high throughput genetic engineering of uh, metabolic engineering. So, um, you know, this is a tool that's going to be very valuable in R&D for living technologies, not just in healthcare, also industrial, agricultural, materials. Um, so it's, it's not gonna make uh, academic research obsolete or um, you know, R&D at you know major pharmaceuticals uh, obsolete, but it's gonna lower the cost and the amount of data you need potentially uh, to, to further to speed up some of these, uh, these research pipelines. It's a weird
0: mix of exciting and scary. Thank you, Max. Steve Symington. President-elect Joe Biden says he won't immediately remove Trump tariffs on China. Uh, I think that's going to surprise some people, but China's a really complicated question. Your thoughts here, Steve?
2: Um yeah but actually before we get to that I see a question someone said is this only live can I watch a repeat telecast uh it we're live right now but you can watch a repeat uh on Twitter on YouTube on Facebook uh it'll be everywhere for you to watch as well so uh, but yes Biden says he won't immediately remove Trump's tariffs uh, in an interview interview with the New York Times um he basically said quote I'm not making any immediate moves and the same applies to tariffs Uh, with regard to China trade policy. I'm not going to prejudice my options. He wants to make a full review of the existing agreement with China. And uh, and it sounds like he's looking... more than anything, to kind of rally the troops with America's allies, so they can kind of have a strategy to combat China. Now, this is something that I actually talked about with uh, iRobot CEO Colin Angle a couple of weeks ago in an interview, and uh, he said, you know, and he, I asked him, you know, how they planned on combating tariffs going forward, and uh, he noted that whoever's in the White House. Uh, has, you know, regardless, everybody signaled they want to be tough on China. And I think what's going to happen here is uh, Biden is going to get all of America's allies kind of on the same page and working together to find a coherent strategy to uh, find sort of a a win-win trade policy with China. So, uh, you know, this is bad news with China. I think he's going to use the tariffs that Trump implemented as leverage uh, in finding and striking a new trade agreement. This should be really interesting. Um, One of the things that you might note, though, is we're not really seeing a lot of movement in stocks that got hurt pretty badly in the beginning because of the tariffs on China. And that's because a lot of them uh, are already taking preemptive measures to combat tariffs and work around them, uh, whether that means uh, reducing their manufacturing in China, moving it to other countries in Asia, Malaysia, or even stateside or Mexico. Um, but uh, that's, you know, we're not seeing a lot of movement there because a yeah, lot of let, companies are already working. Let, let uh, me jump
0: yeah. in, Steve. This isn't breaking news. This mm-hmm. is Biden saying, I'm going to take time. I'm going to talk to our, our allies who maybe we have some sort of restrained relationships with right now. And I'm going to do something thoughtful. And I'll also point out that China has to factor into this. This has to be a negotiation and discussion because Tesla, Starbucks, every company that makes movies, they need China. There's an open discussion on how movies are going to be shown and how they're going to make money. Well, China is a big piece of this. So some of this is kind of a frenemy situation. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's... I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, sort of sort of frenemies, it's like they, they know that... Um, they they want to work with them, but they don't want to give uh, as much as they have in the past. So I, I think we're going to leverage the tariffs that we have. I think eventually... Uh, They go away or they're significantly reduced once we have a new trade agreement in place, but that's not going to happen right away. And uh, it's sort of what we kind of expected uh, to see from an incoming Biden administration anyway. uh, They say, you know what, Uh, we're going to take our time. We're going to review all our options and uh, we're going to work through this. And uh, it'll be interesting to watch it unfold uh, over the next several quarters and, uh, and how that impacts the bottom lines of companies that are currently impacted by tariffs on their products imported from China.
0: It's also generally fair to say that tariffs raise prices for Americans. Like, yeah. uh, the idea of tariffs is to take something and make it compa- you know a comparable price to make it here as making yeah. it in China. As someone who has imported from China, my family imports steel scaffolding from China and has a factory in Ipswich, New Ham- New Ipswich, New Hampshire uh, that makes steel scaffolding the prices are ridiculously not compatible. So it's not like a 20% tariff is going to make manufacturing in the US for that particular item all that useful. It's a very complicated question. It's one we're going to come to again. I don't usually weigh in on what we're watching, but as many of you know, I, I follow retail. There are not a lot of people who are are nuanced following retail. Uh, and I saw some news that I thought was huge. Kohl's, uh, embattled Kohl's, is adding Sephora stores to 850 locations. This is a brilliant deal. So I've been talking a lot about how Kohl's should go to more of a store within a store model. And that's something that one of its failed rivals, JCPenney, sort of has. Sephora was in JCPenney. The problem is JCPenney's Penney's mostly in malls and there'd be a mini Sephora in that JCPenney. And there might be a full Sephora in the mall. It's the same thing with LensCrafters and I think Foot Locker. It didn't make a lot of sense. Most Kohl's locations are off mall, So these are new locations for Sephora. There's also going to be dedicated Sephora signage, and in some cases, dedicated entrance. So this is a partnership that's going to build traffic. It's very much like what Best Buy has done with Apple stores, with Microsoft stores, with Verizon stores. Beauty is also a driver. People like to go in person and get makeup done. I know on my list is going in person to getting makeup done so I can look less red and shiny when on camera. Um, And that's not something you could really do during pandemic or 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 over the internet uh this is going to drive people to cold i think it's a really really smart day guys this has been a long show so we are skipping the home stretch that's usually what we do in the next segment but we are moving to our finisher sam bailey bring up the graphic here We asked the question, which retailer had the best Black Friday slash Cyber Monday? And you overwhelmingly said Amazon. Uh, 69%, 11.3% said Walmart, 9.5% said Target, 10.2% said Best Buy. Guys, I don't think there's a loser here. I'm not even sure what I could say. I actually think the answer is probably going to be Target. I think they're going to have really stellar growth uh, and better profit margins. But Steve, any thoughts on this one?
2: Uh, I, I would have voted Amazon just by sheer scale. Uh, but if I'm looking at our household, we spent more money at Target uh, this holiday season so far than we did on Amazon or any other retailer. So uh, I might agree with you there. Uh, as far as relative results go, uh, I think Target has has really mopped up a lot of the uh, the any of the commerce and retail uh, that might have been lost elsewhere, uh, even more so than Amazon.
0: So Max, I'll give you the last word, but just know after the show I'm going to be making you a mixtape. I know you don't know what a mixtape is, but think of it like a playlist that's on a cassette. It won't be on a cassette, of You've course. You've
2: seen Guardians of the Galaxy, I think. You know. <laughs> oh dear Wait, God! And,
1: and what, what is a cassette tape? I don't understand these words. That's how I feel when uh, you must feel when I talk about proteins. No, um. I guess I would, I would have also guessed Amazon. I'm not a, not a prime subscriber again. I'm weird, but, um, I did most of my black Friday shopping at home Depot. I bought a new washer dryer, but that's because I need one. So, uh, Home Depot was not an option,
0: unfortunately. Well, let me ask you the question. Did you shop that around in buying a washer dryer? Like, I know we we bought a refrigerator, which is now stupid because we're moving, uh, but we bought a refrigerator a few months ago, and we ended up buying it from Lowe's, which was a terrible experience, and we won't go back into that because I'll start to cry. It was really awful, um, but we did look at Best Buy. We did look at... at at Home Depot as well, we looked at some local places and it just came down to, we had a very specific space and the kind of only option that checked out well was the one we bought from Lowe's. But uh, Max, did you shop that around?
1: Yeah, I um, I looked at Home Depot and Lowe's and I actually bought uh, the set from Lowe's first and then there was a problem processing my payment and it was just kind of a whole headache. And then uh, I got like $100 cheaper at Home Depot. So I just went there and they have better delivery it seems. So it's kind of like more pain-free going to Home Depot in my experience but those are the only two places i looked at
0: well there nothing can be as painful as dealing with lowe's i, I believe it was 27 <laughs> phone calls four separate delivery dates one time where they were going to deliver to not the house we were sending it to, one time they said they were there when they were clearly lying because no one from my building saw them. Uh, This is not a great experience. It is ripe for disruption. Uh, Lowe's does not handle its own logistics. Neither does Costco. uh, Neither does Best Buy. Neither does Home Depot. That is a problem, and it's a massive advantage for Amazon. This has been an epic show. We appreciate your support. Uh, All of the people answering on Twitter, all of the people commenting along. Uh, but we are done. That's the end of today's episode of 7investing now. If you have questions for us, send us an email to info at 7investing.com. That usually goes to Steve Symington. He will pass yeah. it out to any of the rest of us uh, if you have questions for us. Or, of course, you can hit us up at 7investing on Twitter. It's often me uh, tweeting there, but everybody on the team is part of it. Uh, for Simon, for Steve, for Max, I'm Dan Klein. Remember to join us Friday for part two of our Look at Below the Radar starts. We'll see you then.